0: Hello, my name is Chiara Giorgetti, and I am professor of law at Richmond Law School. Today, I am here to speak about one obvious, but maybe not much studied, consequence of the proliferation of international courts and tribunals. And that is the creation of an international judiciary. Indeed, with the increased numbers of international courts that enjoy jurisdiction over diverse topics such as law of the sea, trade, human rights, and international criminal law, and in parallel the increased use of international arbitral tribunals to resolve issues such as investment disputes, but also more regular classic, so to speak, international legal questions such as territorial or maritime boundaries, There is a group, a number of people, who are selected, nominated, or appointed as international judges and arbitrators, and who are called to resolve a variety of international legal disputes under a variety of international procedures. These men and women play a fundamental role in international law, both in terms of its enforcement, clarification, and development, and also as far how international law is perceived as as an effective, fair, and legitimate source of law, and, of course, as an effective dispute resolution mechanism. Therefore, learning how international judges and arbitrators are selected is increasingly important as a topic of general public international law and for those who study it. Today, I would like to discuss, first, how these men and women are selected to become judges and arbitrators, second, the qualities that are necessary and required to become judges and arbitrators, and third, what procedures exist to remove or recuse judges or arbitrators, should they lack the qualities that are required under their respective statutes. So, first question, how are the judges and arbitrators appointed? Overall, really, there are two ways. One is directly, by the parties, or the second, indirectly, by a third party. But in general, direct appointments is predominantly seen in arbitration, while we see an appointment by a neutral entity in an international permanent tribunal. But this is a very generalization, though, and within these two methods there are many permutations. On one side, most judges in permanent courts are elected by secret ballot, by a general assembly of the international organization of which the court is part. For example, this is the case of the interna- for the International uh, Court of Justice of the United Nations, for ITLOS, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, within the United Nations Commission of the Law of the Sea, for the WTO, and for the European Court of Human Rights, within the, the Council of Europe. This is the general framework, and there are many variations and differences. So, first, how many bodies decide and how do they decide? The International Court of judges for the International Court of Justice require votes by both the General Assembly and the Security Council. These organs vote simultaneously, but separately. And in order to be elected, a candidate must receive an absolute majority of the votes in both bodies. This sometimes makes it necessary for a number of rounds of voting to be held. In most cases, however, there's only one vote from one body. For example, at the International Criminal Court, the election via the Assembly of State Parties is done by the Assembly of State Parties, and the highest number of votes and a two third majority of the state parties present in voting guarantee the election of a judge. Under ITLOS, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, it is the Assembly of the State Parties of ANCLOS that select and vote for judges. For the ICTY and ICTR, uh, ad hoc tribunals created to resolve disputes in international criminal law, They are elected by the United Nations General Assembly, based on a list submitted by the Security Council. Finally, for the WTO, these are... um, the the judges... uh, arbitrators are selected by the Dispute Settlement Body, which is the WTO General Council, which requires unanimity. Second question. Who proposed the names to be considered or voted by the General Assembly, or by the um, Assembly Body? Again, two options, either direct or indirectly. At the ICJ, the judges, the nominations, are done by national groups, which are formed in accordance with the procedure of the Permanent Court of Arbitration. The states establish a group of four persons who are recognized... who have recognized competence in international law and of high moral character. For the United States, for example, the group is formed by former legal Advisor of the State Department, Uh, and also receive advice for nominations from learned societies such as the American Society of International Law. For the European Court of Human Rights, three members are presented by each member state for voting to the Assembly. As I mentioned before, for the ICTY and the ICTR, the list is presented by the Security Council, it is presented by the General Assembly. This is the first way in in which judges are selected. On the other side of the spectrum, so to speak, in non-permanent international arbitral tribunal, the choice is not made by an assembly, but the parties in the dispute themselves. Arbitral tribunals are composed generally by three members, and this is the case, for example, in investment arbitration. In this situation, each party selects one arbitrator, and the remaining arbitrator is selected by a third, neutral party. Often in intrastate disputes, such as the Eritrea Ethiopia Boundary Commission or a tribunal constituted under Annex 7 of ANCLOS, there is a choice of five arbitrators. The situation is the same parties select a number of arbitrators, and the presiding arbitrator is selected by a third neutral party. This can often be an appointing authority, like, for example, in the Iran US Claims Tribunal. And under certain rules, there is a requirement that the party ask a neutral actor, for example, the Secretary General of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, to nominate the appointing authority. In certain situations, again, for example, in investment arbitration, may also, the, the presiding arbitrator may also be selected by agreement of the parties themselves, or by the arbitrators selected by the parties. When it is for the appointing authority to select the presiding arbitrator, What are the limits that that appointing authority has? Very often, that appointing authority has a list. So, for example, for ICSID, contracting states can name up to 4 people in a panel of arbitrators. And the chairman of the administrative council may also designate up to 10 people. Um, Nomination by by ICSID are bound to be taken by this panel of arbitrators. Now, both methods of selection, direct or indirect, have advantages and disadvantages, of course. Third party elections is is normally considered to be more independent and durable, but the concern is an over-politicization of the process, with judges campaigning to be elected, for example. When we think about direct uh, nomination by the parties themselves, there's a risk of of the arbitrators not being sufficiently detached they are too close to the parties, and they may have an inclination to vote in line with the party that appointed him him or her. Notice, as I said, this system uh, is very rare to find a system that is purely indirect or direct. For example, at the International Court of Justice, we also have ad hoc judges that are appointed specifically by the parties. And this is also the situation on ITLOS, and in arbitration we also have third-party appointments. Now, this situation begs to immediate follow-up questions. First, how long do judges and arbitrators serve? And how many judges and arbitrators um, exist in each court or tribunal? So, for the first question, how long do they serve? Arbitrators, of course, only serve for the duration of one case. Once the case is over, the arbitral tribunal is functo ufficio. However, the arbitration generally takes a couple of years, several years, for each case. As for the judges in permanent courts, there are a variety of terms. We have nine years for the International Court of Justice, for ITLOS, and for the ICC, while the dispute settlement body of the WTO provides for four years. Can judges be re-elected? In most situations they are, but there's an exception for the dispute settlement body of the WTO, for example, um, panelists can only be re-elected once, and for the European Court of Human Rights there are no re-election. Judges serve only for one term. In the African Court of Human and People Rights, the number of judges is 11. These are nationals of member states of the African Union, and they are elected, of course, in individual capacity. The judges are elected by an assembly of heads of state and government, and serve for a period of six years, and may be re-elected also only once. Interestingly, these judges serve for a part-time period, except for the president, who is full-time. How many judges? Um, The big choice, the main choice, is either a representation or a full membership of all contracting parties. In general, the judges are only a representation, so, for example, again, for WTO, it's seven members of persons of recognized authority with demonstrated expertise in law, international trade, and the subject matter covered by the agreement. For the International Court of Justice, it's 15 judges. For ITLOS, it's 21 judges. There is one exception, at least, and there is... that requires a full representation. Each contracting state of the Europe, of the Council of Europe can select a judge for uh, for the internet for a European Court of Human Rights. This makes 48 judges. Each contracting state has a seat. Arbitrators of courts are much smaller. The gen- generally, there are three arbitrators per arbitral tribunal. Some provide for five and very exceptionally it's one. Given these basics, what are the other requirements and qualities that judges have to have? It's interesting to note that some qualities are linked to each specific judge, while others, especially those related to diversity, require a look at the entire composition of the bench. So, for the first one, the ones that are... for the qualities that are required of each judge, in general, and for all judges and arbitrators, independence and impartiality is required, together with a high moral standard, that is common in all statutes, for both courts and tribunals. For the International Court of Justice, judges must be elected from among persons of high moral character, who possess the qualifications required in their respective countries for appointment to the highest judicial offices, or are jurisconsults of recognized competence in international law. Judges are required to perform a solemn declaration in open court that they will exercise their powers impartially and conscientiously. Under ICSID, the International Convention for the Settlement of Investment Dispute, persons designed to serve on the panels shall be persons of high moral character and recognized competence in the fields of law, commerce, industry and finance, who may be relied upon to exercise independent judgment. In practice, the international judiciary is often made up of former high-level government officials, like legal advisors in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, professors of international law, and more rarely international organization officials, former judges, or former practitioners. This is the case especially for investment arbitration. Another common requirement relates to nationality, and this is a very interesting one. International judges and arbitrators serve independently for governments, of course, but nationality and regional representation play a role in most composition of the courts and even in arbitral tribunals. First, for regional representation. Under most statutes, there is a requirement that the principal legal systems or the regions are represented. So, for the International Court of Justice, the selection must be based on the princ- on principal legal systems of the world. There is a gentleman agreement or gentle person agreement translated, um, that translated that requirement into seats to be allocated specifically by region. Historically, this is three judges for Africa, three for Asia, two for Eastern Europe, two for Latin America, and five judges from Western Europe and other countries, for example, like Canada, Australia, or New Zealand. It's also something uh, traditional that for all the P5, the Permanent Five of the Security Council, have traditionally held a seat. The only deviation recently um, occurred when the judge nominated by the United Kingdom was not re-elected. This is the very first time that a, a judge nominated by a P5 is not selected, uh, and so that the Western European group also has one less judge. And it, is to inter- it will be interesting to see what the repercussions will be for future votes. For ETLOS each UN regional group has at least three judges. And the regional groups are defined by the United Nations: are Africa, Asia, Eastern Europe, Latin America and the Caribbean, Western Europe, and other states. As for nationality, ICJ, the, for the International Court of Justice, no two judges can be of the same nationality. But nationality play a very important role, so to speak, on the back door. So that parties that are not represented, for example, may name an ad hoc judge. And Niklas has the same situation, the same uh, principle. For the European Court of Human Rights, national judge always sits in the cases concerning the state on which she has the nationality. Interestingly, interestingly in arbitration, the situation is often the opposite. So, the nationality is always... always... Bar, very often bar the nomination as arbitrators in any given case. What are some other requirements? So, we talked about the representation of the legal system, and we talk about... now it's the turn to talk about expertise. In general, the expertise... there is no uh, special special requirement of expertise. But more recently, there is a requirement that some judges may need to possess expertise in a specific issue that a tribunal is called to resolve. This is the case, for example, for the Law of the Sea tribunal, for the WTO and, most notably, in the ICC. And in fact, the International Criminal Court has a particular detailed requirement for um, expertise, so that every candidate for election to the court shall have established competence in criminal law and procedure and the necessary relevant expertise, whether as judge, prosecutor, advocate, or um, in any other similar capacity in criminal proceedings, or has established competence in relevant areas of international law, such as international humanitarian law and the law of human rights, and extends his experience in a professional legal capacity which is of relevance to the judicial work of the court. An interesting and possibly more... newer concern is that of gender balance. Under most statutes, there is no requirement of gender balance. And this is a particular... this is particularly problematic. At the moment, there are only three women at the International Court of Justice, and this is still the highest number in history. Investment arbitration has a similar uh, paucity of women representation, with 7% of women uh, nominated as arbitrators. The exception is the International Criminal Court again, and this is probably uh, one of the one of the reasons is probably this is a much more recent statute. So the Article thirty-six of the Rome Statute requires the state party shall, in the selection of judges take into account the need within the membership of the court for the representation of the principal legal system of the world, equitable geographical representation, and representation, equal representation of female and male judges. For arbitrators, there are really no rules related to gender and geographical diversity, so that the required qualities are actually very limited. So, there's only the general requirement that arbitrators are independent and impartial. And this has raised some problems in practice. The, the legitimacy of the system of investment arbitration has been questioned because of uh, lacking... The, because of the lack of diversity. Through these diverse rules of appointment and requirements, contracting states have attempted to create a system of international adjudication that is seen and perceived as fair and impartial, and whose decisions are legitimate and equitable. The success of this forum is clearly shown by how often parties use the the forum to resolve their disputes and the success their awards and judgment enjoy. That said, the creation of such a vast judiciary, largely ad hoc, and using different procedural and substantive rules, has also raised some issues worth noting. For example, issues of the appointment. Are judges possibly too political? Are they too close to the governments or the parties that nominate them? Are their desire for reappointment possibly prejudge or influence their decisions? In an effort to insulate them, the European, Court of International, uh, the European Court of Human Rights provides for no re-election, and they, for the International Court of Justice, you have a nomination which is removed from states. For, in, for arbitrators specifically, uh, some of the criticism pertain to the fact that parties may be too powerful, and that arbitrators in general lack diversity. Another issue that may be raised is the absence of a general code of conduct, which is quite interesting because, as judges are international, they are um, bound by very, sp- very general um, ethics rules, but th- there is no common international code kind of conduct. Another possible, conf- another possible issue is the com- possible existence of, of conflicts of interest, especially if one sees the big, bigger picture of all the courts and tribunals together and does not focus on only one court. Um, the issue of repeat appointments, the issue of um, double hatting, where a person uh, has several acts either as counsel or arbitrators, are all issues that may be... Um, that may create some concern about the work of, interna- of, of international courts and tribunals. Um, and this has also seen some reactions by the, by the courts and the tribunals themselves. So, for example, there have been practice directions by the International Court of Justice prohibiting former counsel or ad hoc judges to sit and and seek um, appointments within the two-year period. There's been a a recent statement by the President of the International Court of of Justice stating that judges of the International Court of Justice will not sit as investment arbitrators. And there's a bigger process under UNCITRAL that is reviewing um, investment arbitration and, in general, investment settlement disputes between state and investors. In addition to the issues I just explored, there is one final issue that I would like to discuss, and that is the challenges and recusal of judges. Because, of course, the ultimate control function of the parties is an efficient and clear procedure to challenge and remove judges and arbitrators who are considered as lacking the necessary requirements to sit in the bench or in the tribunal, which was explored. So, in terms of institutional safeguards, we have on one side selections and tenure rules and impartiality rules, But we also have to have very strong procedures for challenge. And there are three important elements here. One is, what is the procedure and how does a party raise a challenge? Who decides the challenge? And of course, what are the grounds under which a challenge can be brought? For the International Court of Justice, it is for the President, the the file has to be sent to the President of the International Court of Justice, confidentially in writing. The president can also, sponde if there is some special reasons, um, act in terms of challenges. And the judge can... the judge, him or herself, can also recuse him or herself. Under ICSID, the file to request a challenge has to be given to the Secretary General. For the International Criminal Court, Rule 34 asks for a proposal in writing as soon as there is knowledge of the ground on which the challenge is based, and the request shall state the grounds and attach any relevant evidence, and shall be transmitted to the persons concerned who shall be entitled to present a written submission." Who decides the challenge? For the International Court of Justice, it is the members of the court. This is the same for the International Criminal Court which is decides the challenge on an absolute majority of all the, ch- of all the uh, judges. For the ICTY and ICTR, the presiding judge confers first with the judges and if necessary, following the report of the presiding judge, the president may appoint a panel of three judges from other chambers to report on the decision on the merits of the application. The outlier here is ICSID, uh, where the remaining members of the tribunal are the ones uh, that decide on the challenge of the arbitrator It there's only one challenge. It is for the chairman of, uh, of the World Bank to, to decide on the remaining members, if, if the remaining members are equally divided, or if the proposal refers to the majority or the sole arbitrators. It's worth noting here that this uh, provision has been criticized by practice and is now in the process of being amended um, by, um, by the by the exit secretariat in its overarching amendment of the rules. What are the reasons for the proposal? When can a party challenge the presence of an arbitrator or a judge in the bench or in the arbitral tribunal? For the International Court of Justice, those are quite strict. They are specified in Articles 16 and 17 of the statute which requires that no member of the court may exercise any political or administrative function or engage in any other occupation of a professional nature. So, they cannot act as agent, counsel, advocate in any case. These are for elected members of the court. For members that are elected and ad-hoc judges, there is a prohibition uh, in case where there is a past participation in a case as agent, counsel or advocate for one of the parties or as a member of a national or international court, commission of inquiry, or in any other capacity. ICSID requires an account of any fact indicating a manifest lack of the qualities required to be nominated. And the International Criminal Court, Article 41, requires that judges should not participate in any case in which his or her impartiality might be reasonably be doubted on any ground. So the grounds very much rely on the requirements that we highlighted earlier um, in the lecture. What is interesting is that most, in most cases, challenges are not very successful. Challenges of arbitrators and judges are rare, and in most cases are not successful. For example, for the International Court of Justice, has only been three cases throughout its history. Uh, and these re- uh, relate both to, uh, also relate to advisory opinions. The most recent one during the World advisory opinion. Differently, under investment arbitration, challenges are much more common. And this may be something that is typical of the fact that it's for the party to select the arbitrators. But they are equally very hard to be successful. In conclusion, In this lecture, I aim to give an overview of the diverse rules and procedures that apply to a very important group of international law actors, international judges, and arbitrators. What I would like to emphasize in conclusion is that the rules are in general similar, they focus on independence and impartiality, but the details pertaining to each forum is very diverse on all sorts of issues, from how they get nominated, and how they are elected, how long they serve, and whether they can be re-elected. This is a result of a non-systemic growth, typical of a non-centralized system, which is international law. There are several lessons that can be learned from these different experiences. And in fact, they can guide us when we are thinking of creating a new court or reforming existing ones. Also, there may be some questions that should be approached generally. Issues of conflict of interest, heading and possibly questions of legal ethics. Thank you.